another Dishcast in Washington, D.C., our nation's capital. It's a beautiful, beautiful sunny day out there. And I've been able to come into the office for a podcast with people who are actually sitting next to me. I can look at them in the eyes. They're not wearing headphones. Um, I am because we started this when we were none of us were wearing headphones because I don't need them if you're in the same studio. And I just got this incredible sort of panic about not doing this with the headphones on. And it's partly because you can hear better, I think, but also partly because I really hate the sound of my own voice and this kind of diffuses it somehow. Anyway, for whatever reason, I'm obviously becoming a creature of this podcast and attached to its various uh, accessories. Um, but this week we're going full-on politics, full-on this election, full-on the deep constitutional questions behind it, and of course, central, central to all this, Donald J. Trump, the, the, the gremlin that refuses to leave the, the kind of dark beast in the forest that seems to be rumbling around again. And who better talk about him with, at least two people I look forward to talking to him about him with, is Michael Isakoff, who is a longtime investigative journalist. If you, I mean, long time. I mean, <laughs> yeah. uh, he, <laughs> he's not Gandalf, no. I mean, he's, he, but I, but I've been Close, in this. Though. I've yeah. been doing journalism in this town for thirty years, and I remember him, his reputation way back then. And also, Daniel Kleidman, who's also an investigative journalist of, of of long time, and they have a new book which is really about what I think is clearly the most significant case in the legal cases brought against Donald Trump. The, the Georgia case, uh, his attempt to subvert the election results in Georgia, and he's staggering fuck-ups along the way, um, giving us a Democratic Senate uh, for more years than we deserved. Um, the book is called Find Me the Votes, quote-unquote, uh, hard-charging Georgia prosecutor, a rogue president, and the plot to steal an American election. Uh, before we go to them, I want to thank you very much for subscribing. We have this amazing audience, and uh, it keeps going up. Uh, we're grateful for your support. And if you want to hear the full podcast and you haven't fully subscribed, uh, you know how to do it. Subscribe. Go get the full podcast so you can hear the full conversation that will carry on. And always, I don't know what it is about podcasts, but they, they often warm up about halfway through, and then they get really good. And you don't want to miss the really good shit. That's all I'm saying. Um, coming up, we have Nate Silver coming back in to talk about the whole 2024 race and other things that we've been thinking about for a while. We have the great uh, Christian Wyman, the, the brilliant Christian poet, uh, former editor of Poetry Magazine, whose new book is really one of the more stunningly modern defenses of Christianity. We have Jeff Rosen, my old friend, coming in to talk about the, the way in which the Founding Fathers were influenced by the Stoics, uh, what they meant by the pursuit of happiness and how you could get there. We also have George Will coming in to talk about Trump and conservatism from a few thousand feet up. At least that's the idea. <laughs> um, and I hope we'll have an interesting conversation, even so, insofar as George is a conversationist. He's a little... He can be a little brusque sometimes in private and, and a little obtuse sometimes, deliberately so, I think. 
Maybe I should have him and Harvey Mansfield on at the same time, and we could have like, endless pauses <laughs> in which we'd be trying to figure out what they meant. Um, and also Abigail Schreier, who, you know, the one, the, the person who wrote about uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria, is coming on about therapy, psychotherapy for children. Uh, why she thinks it's gotten a little out of control and how better to bring up kids so that they're not quite as completely fucked up as the youngest generation seems to be at the moment. Um, but all that's a uh, preamble to welcoming you, Mark, Mike, <laughs> Mike and Dan. Um, we always do this on this podcast, so I'm going to ask you to give us a little rundown of where you were born, who your parents were, where you grew up, just a little bit about how you found your way into to journalism. Well, that is a question I have not been asked on any podcast or interview yet, but I'm happy to oblige. Dude, because I honestly think yeah. that people, you know, you're not just a journalist. You are people, and you have particular experiences and life experiences, and there are reasons you're doing why you do what you do. And before I want to talk to I'd like give, I'd like give readers a sense of the person who wrote the book. Yeah. Well, I, and I am Michael Isikoff, um, and uh, I grew up on in on Long Island, suburb of New York, Syosset, um, went to college at Washington University in St. Louis, and while I was at college, um, I was a um, editor of the campus newspaper, and it was, uh, not to date myself, um, the um, uh, year of Watergate, 72, uh, and I was reading on the Washington Post news service all these uh, in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, all these stories by these reporters, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, about Watergate and was completely enthralled. And, of course, by senior year, Watergate had broken wide open. The tapes were released. We used to reenact the tapes uh, in, in my uh, college dorm. I mean, somebody played Haldeman, somebody played Ehrlichman, really? somebody played Nixon. Yeah, we would like totally do it. So I was like a total Watergate freak. And of course, that gave me the inspiration to become a journalist. And, um, you know. And where did you get your first job? Well, I came to Washington. Uh, I lived in my friend's basement for um, about six months, called myself a freelance writer, even though I had not actually published anything. Um, but I um, got a job at some uh, uh, news service. It was called Capital News Service that covered um, uh, Washington for small newspapers. I was making $8,000 a year. That then became part of State's News Service. And eventually I got a job at something called the Washington Star, which was the afternoon newspaper mm. in Washington, covering, um, I was covering local news, Prince George's County. Uh, that folded. I have a long history of working for publications that fold. Well, that's, um, just, the, that's just being our generation yeah. journalism. <laughs> yeah, um, but, uh, you know, all the best to your the future of your podcast, by the way. Um, and uh, then the star folded and I got a job at the Washington Post. And, you know, from there, Washington Post, Newsweek, where I worked to this with this guy, Dan Clydman. Uh, and then I did a little uh, 
little excursion into TV news. I was at NBC News and uh, then was at Yahoo, again, working with Dan. And, um, you know, now I just, you know, have written a book. I've written a number of books, but this is the most recent. States News Service used to be this wonderful kind of training for for young journalists. They paid you nothing. What was your salary? Uh, well, actually, I got a bump because my first job was eight thousand dollars, and then I think I got a, a ray a year, and I think I, I got it up when I was at State to nine thousand dollars a year. So, but I, does it still exist? No, I mean not that I know of. I mean, the head of it, I think, went to jail. I mean, there was okay. some tax issues huh. or something. But, um, but insofar as we have, you know, this this real crisis in local journalism. Um, yes. Uh, a big issue, by the way, a, and a really no, an important one. important issue, I know. Yeah. Anyway, the person you've been hearing in between is just recently is Dan Clydeman. Um, Clydeman, not Clydeman. Uh, tell Thank me, you. Tell me, where, where did you grow up? So I, I also kind of grew up in the shadow of uh, Watergate. Um, I grew up in, in the Washington area, and my dad was a reporter at the Washington Post in the 70s. And uh, I was quite a bit younger than uh, Mr. Isikoff, uh, but uh, I would uh, come down to see my father in the, at the Post and, and, and see Bernstein, Woodward and Bernstein in the, in the newsroom and, um, and Ben Bradley, you know, who was this kind of swashbuckling figure. Um, and I was too young to really know anything about journalism, um, at, at, you know, at that time. But I did, you know, you, you could sense the romance um, of of what was going on at the Washington Post uh, at, at that time. Um, and it also did um, inspire me, I think. I didn't realize it at the time, but to eventually go into journalism. And actually, in high school, um, in I went to a high school in Washington. Um, uh, I got an after-school job working for an investigative reporter named Scott Armstrong, um, who's still around. Um, Scott, I talked to him Is recently. He? And, yep, and he was... Um, Scott was actually a Watergate investigator. He was on the on the committee, um, and uh, I think he was a source uh, of, of Bob Woodward's. And then uh, they ended up writing a book about the Supreme Court called The Brethren, which kind of, you know, sort of blew the lid off the, what what really happens inside the Supreme Court. And um, and then he came to the Post, uh, and I worked for him as a kind of gopher and got to do some research and learn some of the tricks of the trade, um, and um, kind of went from there. Um, my uh, my first real uh, reporting job in in Washington was at a great little feisty little paper uh, 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 which doesn't exist anymore called Legal Times. And Legal Times covered kind of law and lobbying. I um, yeah, and I, I covered the courts um, and you know sort of this gritty courthouse and and uh, and eventually the Justice Department, um, um, which is kind of when I got to know Isakoff, um, and then eventually went on to uh, Newsweek where I worked for them. But the, my that was my father who worked at the Post, but I want to mention my mother, uh, Kitty Clydeman, um, who uh, was a, um, a Holocaust survivor, and she grew up. Uh, she was in Czechoslovakia, um, and she was hidden uh, with her immediate family during the war. And, and so I grew up hearing these stories about the Nazis, you know, literally coming and looking for them, and and you know, um, and. Um, your you know, mom, not your grandma. My mom, my mom. I'm yeah, yeah. She was she was a little girl. I mean, she was uh, seven, eight when she was hiding, so she remembers it quite well. Um, and my grandfather, her father, lived with us for quite a long time, so I used to hear his stories. Um, and so, you know, I, I I do think at at some level those stories, um, you know, had an effect on me in terms of uh, 
you know, wanting to, um, uh, you know, sh- shed light on terrible things that people with power uh, can do. Expose um, evil. Expo- expose evil. Um, and, um, you know, and here we are. I don't want to make a direct comparison, obviously, but here we are at a time when, you know, there's a lot of talk about sliding into authoritarianism. Um, and, um, you know, all of that resonates with me. Also, of course, one would imagine Watergate itself was was a sort of, you know, for all journalists that want to bring down people in power who've done bad things, the the you know the, the wettest dream you could possibly have. Yeah. And, and I, also- I should point out just to complete my own story, which is when the Washington Star folded and I got the job at the Washington Post, it was Bob Woodward who hired me. He was the Metro editor of the Post at the time. Uh, and- now, when with Woodward and Bernstein, there's a sense that one of them did all the tedious, boring, like, investigation. The other one could write. And that's probably unfair to both <laughs> of them. Um, uh, is there some trick to this, this, these duos that do this? Because every now and again, someone says, can we do something together? I'm like, are you kidding? Like, there's no way I could write a piece with someone. I just, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> you know, I, I don't it's, a great, start. <laughs> it's a great question. I mean, look, we've worked together for a long, long time because we. I came to Newsweek in 96. So yeah. it's like pushing whatever. So what works? Uh, what works? So, so first of all, um, I think because we'd worked together so, so long, did so many stories together at Newsweek, I think we sort of do have, uh, share a kind of a worldview and a sense of what, what a story is uh, and, and how to tell stories. Um, and we are kind of like a, you know, old married couple in some ways. We can finish each other's <laughs> sentences and, and uh, we bicker uh, a fair amount. Um, but I think there's also uh, ways in which we, we, uh, we complement each other, you know, because we're not carbon copies at all. Uh, and so Mike may have, you know, more... Uh, a little more interest in, you know, uh, sticking attacking, it to people, sticking <laughs> it to people. I may have a little more interest in in the sort of human dimension of the story. Um, and and um, and then I think some of that rubs off on each on each other. Right. So and I should point out, I mean, because we worked at Newsweek together for years, I mean, Newsweek was at news magazines are collaborative enterprise. Right. You, you Nobody writes stories or at least in the traditional news mags. You didn't write stories by yourself. You did the reporting, you filed to others uh, who, you know, would massage it and um, write it. So, you know, we were used to um, collaborative journalism. And, and, and book writing is, can be pretty lonely, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, and so doing it with someone, you know, you get along with is- Especially, just, I imagine, investigative journalism, because you can, there must be periods when you're getting nowhere. And if you don't have someone to buck you up, yeah. we were getting, you, we, 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 we were nowhere when we started nowhere. this and we were getting nowhere for a long time. But at the same time, when you do get something, it's good to have somebody to like talk to and say, hey, exactly. yeah. we got, I, I had a breakthrough today. Yeah. We yeah. got this yeah. or we yeah. nailed yeah. this down. Yeah. 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 Well, let's get to the story of the day, the story that you're telling here. It's really Two stories, two trains coming down yeah. the track, really. That, and we, we've yet to see the collision. We don't know what the end of this is. It's just a, in some ways, the book is just a, 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 a foreword to a drama that is about to happen. And that's why I felt it was really interesting. Although there's plenty of drama. Oh, no, I know, I know, no, no, I know. I don't know. There's a lot of huge drama. I mean, you couldn't, I mean, on, I know this, you couldn't make this up um, from the four season. It's a photo op to Sydney. I mean, this stuff is this is absolutely out of 
uh, wacky races, it felt like to me. There was Penelope Pitstop and Dick Dazzley was going to show up. This is the Trump team. And so you had the Trump team uh, from drunk Giuliani on election night in just, well, we just say you want it. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. to, to uh, law, uh, till January 6th we, we, and beyond. Uh, and then we also have the response to that, um, which is from, in this case, uh, Fannie Willis and the, the Georgia-based uh, prosecution of, of, of what appears to be a very serious crime against the republic. Uh, and so you have these two stories going. They're full of very different characters. And I think what's fun about the book is that you see the different backgrounds. There's a lot of race uh, questions in this book uh, and, and how that affects people. But I want to just uh, start by asking, asking you to just remind us, because I thought it was helpful reading this book, to just remember the basic chronology of what happened. Take us, not endlessly, but take us yeah. to, uh, through the plot. Sure. So and we'll start on that night, and we start with Giuliani, who you vividly described as slurring his words and, <laughs> and, and barely being able to function. He's, he's this unbelievably sad character in all of this. Yeah, well, there are a lot of sad characters uh, and a lot of very col colorful characters. But look, as we write in the book, um, you know, Georgia was ground zero for what was the most anti-democratic plot in American history. It was the state where Trump's pressure campaign was most furious, was most intense, was most um, uh, egregious in, in, a, in ways in which he was prepared to use extra legal means and uh, at every stage um, to achieve his ends, which was to stay in power. Uh, and uh, it is um, it is worth uh, noting that, uh, you know, you said before the Georgia case is uh, in some ways the most consequential case. And we agree with that because, look, Trump didn't do what he did on his own. You know, in the Jack Smith case, the case here in Washington, he's the sole defendant. We're Trump, talking about the Jack Smith case is the is the, is the election interference case. Oh, OK. Yeah, I'm thinking about We're that. We're not talking about the documents. No, case. no. Okay. I'm talking about the election interference case. Look, at the end of the day, it was Trump Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 election that I think we believe was his worst <laughs> action of many uh, and most egregious and um, uh, most shocking um, from the standpoint of American history. And he had an army of Confederates who at every stage were furthering his, uh, his needs and doing his bidding to achieve um, what he wanted. And, you know, from Rudy Giuliani from election night, you know, drunk out of his mind saying, just say you won and we'll take it from there, uh, to John Eastman, the constitutional scholar who came up with the cockamamie plans for fake electors and, and uh, challenging the election results on uh, the electors on January 6th, uh, to Mark Meadows, uh, Trump's chief of staff, uh, uh, who was doing uh, his bidding at every stage, all the way down to a friggin' bail bondsman in Georgia, Scott Hall, 
um, who was one of the instrumental figures in the raid in Coffee County, a computer heist, which was this kind of modern day Watergate that took place um, uh, as part of Trump's obsession with getting access to the Dominion voting machines, which would show that Venezuelan socialists working for Hugo Chavez had planted secret algorithms in the voting machines to flip votes from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. And all this was Joe to secure Biden. Georgia's And uh, all to secure Georgia's votes. electoral votes. And all of them are indicted in the conspiracy case brought by Fonnie Willis uh, in Georgia. Um, and that's why I think the Georgia case is the most significant of the cases, because it's the, it's the case that presents the full story of what took place. And when you look at the totality becomes, you know, much more shocking than you well, might give, have thought let's, let's, at the let's, time. Let's do this then. Let's do five shocking things that were done. Maybe down. I mean, just, I just chronologically. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, um, uh, Mike mentioned this kind of modern day uh, Watergate, um, the cyber heist um, of, um, uh, of the election office in Coffee County, rural um, county in, 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 uh, the deepest, most southern part of, of Georgia. Um, and they essentially, they're, they're invited in by kind of local Republican functionaries um, to get a hold of these election machines, the software, um, and voter data. Um, this is, um, all of this stuff, uh, the, the, the voter when data. Did, when did this happen? This actually, interestingly, this happened uh, on January 7th. So did literally, they, did the, they get the machines? So they did. They got, they got the data. They got the machines. They got access to it all. They uploaded it uh, uh, onto servers. Um, and um, the did that affect the, the counting of the votes? It 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 did not. Right. Uh, okay. It did not in, in in the end. But the, the significance is the government considers this kind of uh, data and, and and these machines um, uh, national security infrastructure. Right. Um, and very sensitive. So someone did that. Why did they do that? Who who do you think they did it? them to do well, that? Well, let me let me with let's, Sidney Powell. So let's let's uh, let's rewind the tape here a little bit. Okay. Uh, and go to uh, just a few days after the election, um, and uh, Sidney Powell um, and. Um, uh, but hold on a minute. Yeah. You said this happened November seventh. January seventh. January seventh. Okay, sorry. January seventh. Uh, but the antecedents, the the the, the seeds are planted. Uh, in the days after the election, when uh, a group of uh, the Stop the Steal fanatics, led by Sidney Powell, set up shop in a uh, in a Weston hotel uh, in in Arlington, outside of uh, Washington, in, in suburban Virginia, and um, in in this conference room, uh, Sidney Powell uh, and uh, and some of the others are laying out a plan. For full-on criminal break-ins into election offices in uh, battleground states, they're very focused on Georgia for a number of reasons. Georgia's closer to where they are. Uh, uh, the Republicans control um, all of the sort of levers of power in Georgia. They thought it would be an easier place to do this. They want to hire ex-military intel operatives to literally break into these offices to steal uh, the machines and our sources who told us this story and and talked to us on the record and provided some documents as well um, tell this story. Sidney Powell is 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 laying it out uh, and she says, but we're going to need hunting licenses. 
And they look at each other. They're sort of bewildered. Well, what in the world are hunting licenses? And then she says, six to eight preemptive pardons that Donald Trump would uh, would pardon these operatives that they were going to hire to give them legal cover because they knew that there was a good likelihood that they would get caught. This way, they could convince them to do it because they would have these 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 pardons. They took this plan to Giuliani at Trump campaign headquarters. Uh, and, you know, in the end, Giuliani um, said, well, this is uh, impractical. It's it's you know, it's over the top. Uh, but he certainly began thinking about how they get these machines. And, and then you they flash wanted forward to get those machines to prove there was some kind of inherent corruption. To, to in prove them. that Hugo Chavez had, like, had, had infiltrated them and put right. them, even though Hugo Chavez and, and, was and long that, dead. And, and implanted uh, yeah, algorithms that would flip votes from Trump to Biden. So they were, they were going to get these machines and give them to some tech whizzes that would figure out exactly how yeah. Hugo Chavez had, had, had won the election for, for Trump. Right, right. Um, but the point— But the my point—I'm my, my, just going to go through this. I'm going to yeah. be devil's advocate here. Yeah. So what? I mean, it, I'm, obviously, it's an important thing. They, they should not have done that crazy shit. But as I read it in your book, as I read it, that meeting, I think this is like just fucking crazy people. Right. They have these, these ideas. They're going to there's going to have ninjas come in and steal <laughs> these voting machines, and and the whole thing is like something out of some weird, yeah. bad, uh, you know, Hulu miniseries. I mean, look, what we write in the book is that this was both more sinister and crazier well, than anybody getting, understood. This, this is so this gets at. to the crazy part. But it also has a sinister dimension because although Rudy Giuliani was for at least a little while the voice of reason about the hunting licenses scheme, he doesn't uh, drop it. In fact, as we trace in the book, it ultimately does lead to that Coffee County raid, which was a real criminal cyber heist, which has been indicted in the Georgia case. Sidney Powell, by the way, has pled guilty because she ended up funding the whole operation. They, um, did, they did this on January 7th. On January 7th, she, that's geniuses. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the time that the I wanna, election but I was wanna, already I wanna, over. You, you're <laughs> yeah. asking a really good question, a really important question. Like, Because, yeah, all the, so much of this stuff seems wackadoodle and, these, and they're, they're nut jobs and, you know, to some extent that the gang that can't shoot straight. Um, but some of it was really consequential. And let me give one example, which is uh, one of the things that we uncovered in our reporting um, is that the whole QAnon kind of cult conspiracy um, was much, much more of a driver of the Stop the Steal enterprise than I think anyone had previous, previous, previously realized. We focus on uh, Lynn Wood, who was this celebrated trial lawyer, a lot of people remember him from the 90s. He had these big cases, Richard Jewell, uh, the uh, falsely accused Olympic bomber, um, John Benet Ramsey's family. But a few years ago, he starts to go down the QAnon uh, rabbit hole, becomes really a full-on devotee of QAnon, where, uh, you know, in, in 2020, he's he's tweeting um, that uh, that Vice President Pence is, is, is going to be executed by firing squad, that uh, Chief Justice John Roberts is involved in pedophilia, that, that he's, uh, you know, running... Uh, child sex trafficking rings, and yes, it sounds bizarre and exotic um, and and wackadoodle, but the reality is that that this stuff had real consequences. So what, and let me, what did Wood yeah. do? Explain yeah. what Wood did. So Wood, uh, 
Wood did a couple of things. Uh, first of all, uh, Wood has this this plantation in South Carolina called Tamatley, um, and um, he he uh, offers up Tamatley as kind of a command center for all of these people where they're you know vetting tips supposedly, but really what they're doing is they're developing. Um, and generating conspiracy theories that they are then going to uh, put into lawsuits and spread around and eventually take this stuff to the, to the legislatures. Because the, the ultimate plan, um, it, it, interestingly, Giuliani knew. Uh, he was a good enough lawyer, despite all of his issues, to know that these, uh, these lawsuits were never really going to go anywhere. It was all kind of a ruse. Um, he knew that uh, unelected judges were not going to say, you know, you know, uh, deny people uh, the the uh, you know the, the their own will as as voters, um, but what he understood was that these lawsuits could be platforms for the pressure campaign, and Linwood understood this as well. And in fact, we have a uh, an email that Linwood sends to Sidney Powell on November 11th that says, "I've got all this great data about you know vote switching and whatever it else." And he says. But we're not going to need any of it because we're not really – none of this litigation really matters. Ha. So he, he gives it all away there. Um, but just back to Lynn Wood. So yeah, let, let's yeah. just take that. So the goal was to create as much doubt and as much fear and as much conspiratorial thinking that eventually this would kick it down the can and state legislatures in the various states could then take away uh, – overrule, basically decide that they're going to send different slate of electors right. to – Washington. Now, none of this happened, of course. Uh, uh, not, not for want of trying. Well, well, again, this is the this is the thing. But what? How likely would it have been? We saw in in Georgia the case, the state where where, where the actual officials in the state could not have been more rock solid in their exactly. contempt. Yeah. So, and that's so an important make, part but, of the story. But, 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 yes. Yeah, so but so it. I want to make two points. Okay. You know, first of all, on what. Danny was describing at the the Star Wars bar scene at Tamatli uh, <laughs> Plantation with all these crazy people, and we have a whole chapter. It's called the QAnon Commission, where you where where you see all the nuttiness that was going on. But you know the the part that is scariest is. Trump was talking to these people. He's calling down to Tamatli. He's calling Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell as they were spouting this nonsense. And, and we have a tape of a phone call in which, uh, you know, December 2nd, they're, they're, at this point, they're in Atlanta for what they call the Jericho March, which was to surround Brian Kemp, the governor's mansion, and blow horns until he calls a special session of the legislature. And Trump calls down that day, you know, knock him dead, go for it. Okay, um, I just uh, want to think about that scene yeah, for a minute. Yeah. Uh, the, the, these, these are Christian fundamentalists, mainly. Yes. Well... <laughs> And this, Lynn Woodward this was, is Jericho. Yeah. This yeah. Is, uh, uh, yeah. Okay. Blowing shofars at, at, yeah. the, uh, at the governor's mansion Again, would look, lead to this, uh, I, a special session. I just, here's what I, here's what I would, we'll, we'll talk more about what you're talking about. But yeah. I just felt the book as it went along undermined the case of the book, which is that, and I'll put this, you know, that, sure. that, these, that the plot was there. No one doubts it was crazy. No, no one doubts it was evil and wicked. Yeah. But it's it's led by a president who's off his rocker, 
um, who who can only really win support from a group of complete nutters right. and fringe lunatics, all of whom have disappeared down some alleyway of addiction or mental illness, it seems. Yeah. Um, these people are seriously mentally ill, as I believe the president is as well, which is why he got along with them. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could say he had a bunch of very weird people who had no idea really about the world, including John Eastman. This memo is absurd. Um, so... Why do we take this so seriously? Though? Well, I'll tell you, here's, a, here's one reason we take it seriously, because the, 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 there, there is a one of the things that these people were doing, um, because they were flooding the zone with uh, on, on social media with all of these crazy conspiracy theories, uh, riling people up, which which I think directly led to the torrent, uh, the, the just the flood of threats that were coming in to uh, to office holders, to their families, to poll workers. Everyone knows the story, I think, of Ruby Freeman and her daughter, uh, Shea Moss. Well, we don't own that. Let's remind well, people, these were, because these this, were, is, this is an important factor. If, right. if this stuff was ginned up to create a, 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 increase the volume of violent threats it, to elected officials, you clearly do have a conspiracy to crime pressure. Pressure public officials to yeah. do the wrong thing, and 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 some of that is ind- indicted in the Georgia case. I mean, the people who went after uh, uh, Ruby Freeman and her daughter uh, are, you know, are indicted in this case. Ruby Freeman, the sixty-three-year-old uh, grandmother um, uh, who volunteers as a poll worker uh, every election, her daughter is actually an election ad- election administrator, um, and they. Uh, happened to be in, um, and they were in the State Farm Arena in Atlanta, uh, where uh, ballot counting uh, was going on. And the Trump people get a hold of a of a, of a video, um, and uh, they make a, a absolutely absurd, uh, unhinged claims about this video that it shows ballot stuffing. They're taking suitcases out of t- uh, out from under the table. Um, and it, it totally investigated by the FBI, by the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, uh, by the U.S. Attorney's Office. Zero there. And well, yet, there was, and yet, completely they, zero. The, there was a weird, there was a weird set, series of events that made it look weird, but they were completely explanatory in retrospect. There, there That's, was, but true, they also, yeah. but they also edited it in ways that made it look as bad as it could possibly be. And, and but, then but the added point is, false, after I'm they, just pointing out. But the point you is, yourself in the book say. Yeah, it was a weird fucking night. Lots of weird stuff happened. But the, but the point, Andrew, is that weeks after they knew uh, that it w- it was bullshit, uh, they continued uh, sure, to uh, sure. you know, and and so um, and and so they put targets on uh, on the on the backs of these of these women. By the way, black women. Um, you know, you mentioned before that there was a racial dimension to this story, and there certainly is. Um, you know, Donald Trump was targeting. Uh, you know, urban areas with large black populations, Philadelphia, Detroit, um, Milwaukee and Fulton County. Um, and um, and and when they talked, you know, when Giuliani talked about uh, Ruby Freeman and, and, and Shea Moss, um, the dog whistles were the racial dog whistles were, were unmistakable. You know, uh, they're 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 act, acting like you know drug dealers passing around as if they're passing around vials of cocaine and heroin when actually they you know passed a ginger mint uh, to each other yeah, that was and, actually one lol moment yeah, in yeah, this thing yeah. But yeah. Look, the, they were they were they were talking about whether they were this woman was passing to another woman uh, some kind of illicit drug and it was a ginger but but, but, mint. but but and but we know that in rest but that to me sums up the whole thing yeah. but look what happened to these women uh, Ruby Freeman 
uh, at the urging of the FBI, had to go into hiding for two months. Her, her, her daughter had to change her appearance. And, you know, th- those are the most prominent examples, but this is pervasive. And it's not just the, the, the principals. It is their family. It is their mothers, their fathers, their sisters, their brothers, their daughters. It is, it is they were creating a climate of fear. And by the way, this had real consequences. It has been much harder in Georgia and elsewhere to get people to do this work. Uh, this this important civic work of making sure that these elections run, um, you know, efficiently and that people have access to the vote. Let so, me just add a couple of other points here that are worth noting, which is Trump was obsessed with this stuff. In the phone call to Brad Raffensperger, which we're going to get to, which we obviously write a lot about, um, Trump mentions Ruby Freeman 18 times. He's continually bringing it up that you know, this African-American woman had like stuffed ballots, Biden ballots uh, into the vote scanners, which was complete nonsense. It had already his own Justice Department had already looked at it and said, there's nothing there. The Georgia Bureau of Investigations, as Danny pointed out, had looked at it and said, there's nothing there. But he but so Trump doesn't needs... give it up. No, yes. because he's he's not well in the head. Uh, yeah. Uh, his need for it not to be true is overwhelms any other instinct. So yeah. I mean, this is why, in fact, the post-election stuff shows you why you don't want a president who, who has a fixed idea in his head of something and simply is completely immune to any evidence against it. Right. This is the kind of person you do not want in office. But anyway, yeah. uh, but, but, uh, but that's partly uh, my point, is that, is that he was crazy, they were crazy, uh, some of this didn't seem as if it was, and the things they did were wrong and illegal. And I'm all in favor of prosecuting the fuck out of these people. But was it a really grave threat to our democracy? Was there ever a chance that Biden wasn't going to be well, you inaugurated? Before, you mentioned before the um, office holders in Georgia who resisted him. Well, let's talk about the And that's an important part Let's talk about the call to Raffensperger. Yeah. Let's, let's, right, which right, one of you right. wants to talk well, about I'll, I'll, just, just to, you know, we talk about, we have a chapter, the Republican Stonewall, because the fact is that the Republican office holders in Georgia and Republicans controlled all the top positions, governor, attorney general, secretary of state, legislature, um, resisted him at every move. Brian Kemp, at this point, is fed up with Trump. Um, the best explanation for why is his wife got fed up that Trump kept taking credit for Kemp's victory over Stacey Abrams. And she had had it with Donald Trump and this bolstered her husband to uh, uh, stand up to him. Uh, Chris Carr, the attorney general, uh, vowed to resign uh, if the state legislature, if he had to defend uh, a special session of the state legislature. Of course, Raffensperger uh, was the top election official and was un- under unbelievable pressure. And we talk a lot about that, um, was um, was a stalwart refusing to bend to Trump. What but I the, found but the real the hero... Raffensperger endorsed Trump early on. Oh, yeah. I mean, he was a Trumpy. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, that's, it's, he was that's... a loyal conservative Republican. Ronald is... Reagan was his hero. Um, he, he admired Trump. He thought he was a self-made businessman, and he yeah, endorsed, endorsed him. him. He was one of the first in the Georgia state legislature. He was a, a legislator. And, really and, 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 and then Trump endorsed him. <laughs> But but when asked to cross the line and do something illegal, every one of them said, no, we're not going to do that. 
Um, and the real hero is the woman we write about, Jordan Fuchs, the, the aide to Raffensperger, 30-year-old Republican consultant, who uh, Mark Meadows uh, reaches out to for that phone call on January 2nd at this point. They're getting desperate, by the way. The clock is ticking towards January 6th. They needed a win somewhere. They needed some place, some state where um, the uh, the election could be thrown into doubt. And they thought Georgia was their best bet. It was uh, a solidly Republican, had been historically a solidly Republican state. They Republicans controlled the legislature, controlled all the top offices. They figured that was our best chance. Let's do that phone call with Raffensperger. She, Jordan Fuchs, knows the danger that Raffensperger faces getting on the phone to Donald Trump, how Trump can distort anything that gets said. Plus, Trump is suing the, the, the Raffensperger at that moment, so they are litigants. Um, uh, so she makes the decision unilaterally, on her own, spur of the moment. She's going to tape the call. She doesn't tell Raffensperger. She doesn't tell Meadows. Of course, she doesn't tell Trump. She's on the call, but you don't know that because she put herself on mute the whole time, so you never hear her voice but she was taping the whole thing. And it was because of that that we have the most compelling evidence of Donald Trump's pressure campaign on state officials. It's central to Jack Smith's indictment. It's a big part of Fonnie Willis's indictment, of course. And we wouldn't have it if this young woman hadn't made this <laughs> split-second decision. And by the way, well, she, was in, she was in, she was, at the time, she was visiting her parents in Florida, or grandparents in Florida, which is a two-party consent state, which means that to tape them, she needs their permission. Everyone on the call, that and was, she didn't that, get it. That, that, yeah. was, that was my uh, yeah. question. It was, yeah. So, so, so she this broke was... the law? No, she didn't. She was in Florida. How convenient is that? Yeah. So, so well, now well, let's talk about the conversation. Yeah, I want to get to the conversation, but just to complete the, the loop on, on, on Jordan Fuchs, I mean, uh, I don't think she knew uh, that uh, the Florida law was two-party consent. It's a minority of states. Most states don't have have one-party consent. Um, but she did it. We and, and it was kind of covered up because when the January 6th committee was planning on calling her as a witness, Raffensperger's office calls, his lawyer says, please don't call her. The January 6th committee knew why, because she was in Florida and, uh, and, and agreed not to exposure. do so. But before the special grand jury in Fulton County, um, she's called to testify and given immunity and under immunity, she acknowledges she taped the call. Oh, we call it the, arguably the uh, single gutsiest and most consequential act of the entire post-election battle. Yeah. Um, and nobody knew it <laughs> that this young woman had done it. But yes, let's let's talk so, about the call. Itself, so Raffensperger is told he's going to get this call. When, what's going through his head? Yeah. What's well, he didn't want to be on the call. I mean, he 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 had been ducking a phone call from Trump because Trump was suing him. Right. He tried 18 so, times to get. Yeah. Through. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. But look, at this stage, it's a direct request from the president of the United States. It's coming from his chief of staff. He wants to talk to the president. So they agree if they're going to do it, his lawyer has to be on the call, you know, um, and then you go through it and you read. And, you know, we have a whole chapter on the phone call from hell uh, is what we call it. And it is amazing every time you just go through the transcript because, you 
you know, Trump tries everything. He starts out cajoling, you know, be friend. Come on, Brad, you know, um, surely you know about all these illegal votes that have been cast, surely. And when Trump, when Raffensperger doesn't start to push back a little bit, Trump goes to the next stage, which is ridicule. Brad, they're laughing at you. You know they're laughing at you because you're allowing all this fraud and that doesn't work. And then he gets more serious and says, you know, Brad, if you don't do this, you're, you've got danger yourself. You could be facing criminal prosecution. And all you, I need you to do is recalculate. I've got air quotes here. Recalculate. All we need is 11,780 votes just one more than he needed to flip Georgia's electoral votes. He threatens criminal prosecution. Um, that doesn't move Raffensperger. And at the end, I think the most revealing moment is in the call where he says, you know, he, he realizes he's not getting anywhere. And then he's like, come on, guys. I'm mean, just talking 11,000 votes. Just give me a break. 11,000 votes. He thinks it's a friggin' real estate deal. The art of the deal. Just throw in 11,000 votes and then we can all shake hands and move a on. Any other politician would have said, I just want to make sure that every vote is fairly counted. He never said that. <laughs> uh, there are some people I have read somewhere out there who say, you could interpret what he said on that call as simply, I want you to be due diligent to make sure every vote is counted. Is there but he any didn't say, no. No, I know he didn't say that, but he did say, find me the votes. Does that mean that there were votes that he thought had been legitimately cast that had not actually been cast, that had not been counted, and that he was instructing Raffensperger to say, look, there might, I think there is stuff, it's been undercounted, and I think there's something the missing. Find uses... me the vote. Find me the votes that are that are missing, that, that should be there, that are not there. Yeah, of course, there were no such votes. But, I mean, the word he uses is recalculate. Recalculate. What the hell does that mean? That's what he says on the phone call. I just need you to recalculate and find me 11,780 votes. He's very precise <laughs> about more. how many votes he needed he needs. at that point. Just one more than was... There, there's something. This, uh, I don't know. There's something exquisite about that, isn't there? In yeah, a way. it is. Uh, because, because, <laughs> but here's what it reminds me. It reminds me of a sort of really bad criminal. Uh, it's a bad one. He's, you know, that that would blurt out, that would put things like that in that way, in a way yeah. that's clearly. Now, here's the interesting question. If, so far as we can, we can it's unanswerable. What, what did? Like, what did Trump really think? Does he? Did I, he seems as if he really does believe that he was robbed. Now, no, no, no. no so it's an interesting question. Does he, or is is or is this an entire an act? Is this a simply evil I, I thing? I would say you're looking at it the wrong way because Trump believes whatever is in his interest to believe, whatever is, you know, is going to further his political interest. But no, he, he believes it because it's in his interest to believe it. He, he has but no, if that's his he's definition untethered of... from the truth. He's untethered from evidence. He's untethered from reality. It's just what's good for me and what's bad for me. And that's the only lens in which he has looked at any of this. I understand. Uh, but that in itself is, means he didn't, re he, he sincerely believed he was robbed. He sincerely believed, however, all of it's delusional, but it's like in a trial. Is he, is he mad? Is, he, is, is this sincere? If he sincerely believes that there were votes taken from him or corrupted, 
uh, then he's asking Raffensperger to recalculate to make sure that those votes are counted. Well, that's not the sense. Does he know in himself? Get, Does I he mean, know in himself that he had subverted yeah, I mean, the Constitution? Do who we... knows what goes through the guy's mind, right? I mean, but we do know that that evidence, facts, reality is not really a factor in the calculation of you know his own actions. Well, in a, in a, right? That's a sort of it's a sort of insanity defense. In a yeah. Way. Yeah. yeah, ignorance of reality is not necessarily a defense. I mean, they're, they're, you I'm know. just trying to. I'm. T- <laughs> no. I just. I just. I just. It's a fascinating the... question, and it is unanswerable. I mean, and that may you know. be his ultimate defense, by the way. I mean, you know, it, is. It, it, it probably I believe it. I'm nuts, but I believe yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, it but, that's, but look at these other people around him. Now, Sidney Powell is clearly mentally unwell, right? I mean, there, there's no question. I mean, we're allowed to say that, I guess. I mean, but the things yeah. she says are just deranged. Well, Lynn Wood, you know, lost oh. his law license because Mike, he wouldn't submit to a psychiatric exam requested by the Georgia State Bar. Mike Flynn, for God's sake. Yeah. Another QAnon crazy. <laughs> this is This was a serious figure who had real responsibility and huge power in the world at one point. Um, and he's gone down this rabbit hole of, of, of plots and, and seasons. He was the national security and, advisor. It's really... With the h- highest possible, you know, <laughs> clearances. And, so I'm going you know. to make this point one more time. When I look at all this together, yep. you, it is perfectly possible to see this as a farce. As, as a, <laughs> it, it, there are yes. parts of it that are purely farcical. Right. Um, uh, I wrote, I wrote the way I put it in this piece I wrote was like you know are we repeating Watergate or or worse as tragedy or are we repeating it as farce or is the fact that it's a farce the tragedy <laughs> uh, that the, the the question I have in my mind I think this is what's going through a lot of people's minds with respect to the possibility of a second Trump administration which now seems seems at least possible very very much in the yeah. realm of the possibility <laughs> is. How really threatened was the transfer of power? Was this just performance, weirdness, Trump's own uh, psychological disorder attracting another bunch of crazies, has-beens, losers who construct this ridiculous and also despicable? I mean, it's both those things at once. Well, I guess ask yourself, you know, if, if Mike Pence had been one of these crazy people. Uh, then w- what would have happened? Um, now it would have, you know, uh, been thrown to the house, and then that you know Republicans uh, control the majority of, of of delegations. It would have been challenged. It would have gone to the Supreme Court. Maybe the Supreme Court, uh, you know, would have uh, you know uh, 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 blocked uh, blocked all of this. But um, you know, one of the things that I think uh, is worrisome about a second uh, Trump term um, is is the courts, um, because um, in the first term, he relied on Leonard Leo and the Federalist Society, and they're very right wing, but the, they're, you know, they're not crazy. Um, and that may not happen in the second term. And you may get the, the courts have been uh, the, you know, really the last line of defense. Um, and they've held pretty firm um, in, in, you know, keeping us, um, you know, uh, uh, connected to uh, the Constitution and, and the rule of law. 
that could erode in a second term. So this stuff, and right. remember, so, uh, obviously can, I, can I just say, because I have a, 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 a slightly different take, because, you know, yes, when you look at just how crazy things got, that, you know, the idea of a, tr a Trump second term can be quite scary. On the other hand, the fact, you look at Georgia, what we write about in the book, that Republican stone wall, the fact is when Trump asked people to do something illegal, most of them pushed back. Most of the office holders, people who had sworn an oath to uphold, you know, the law in their state, pushed back. And I think, you know, um, when it, were there to be a Trump second term and, you know, people talk about what he might do to the Justice Department or Homeland Security and he'll get his people in and they'll do all sorts and they'll investigate Joe Biden and go after his political enemies and all that. And I think... I'm not so sure. They'll try. They'll try. But are career Justice Department lawyers going to jeopardize their law license and risk criminal prosecution by doing Donald Trump's bidding, by filing motions in court and getting before federal judges, asking them to, in, you know, bring indictments against political enemies of Donald Trump? I suspect there'll be a lot of pushback on yeah, that I, I and agree. a lot of people who will not go along. I agree. But look, no, I don't think most people think, maybe some people do, but I think people who have studied the, the threat here that it's a, you know, a flip of the switch and all of a sudden we become an autocracy. I think it's a gradual kind of slow burn uh, kind, kind of thing. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, you know, we, we've seen it, you know, we've, we've seen it in, in Hungary. We've seen it in, in, in other uh, places uh, led by you know these kind of populist authoritarian figures, um, and I'm not sure uh, that um, you know that that I that I want. Um, obviously, I do want Justice Department lawyers, career lawyers, to be standing in the breach, but I'm not sure I want to have to rely only on that. <laughs> the, you know? um, one of the worst things that one worries about is the the, the politicization of the Justice Department. Right. But then, when you actually unpack that, you realize, oh, you mean the politicization of the post-Watergate Justice Department, which, which was not made as explicit before. Those are norms. To be Those aren't, right. Well, I know. Yeah, but, they're but, not but, laws. They're norms. But there is a way in which someone like Kennedy would use the Justice Department. It wasn't that, you know, I mean, his own brother was running it. it, yeah. was, it we, I'm not saying it wasn't completely out of, uh, out of left field. I, I just, I think that one of the things we have to do when we're thinking about the next term of this possible this horrible person um is to try and understand how much threat we're under i and i and i think a little distance from the events of 2020 is helpful in that respect and i think the book and this is why i recommend it it's, it's a really helpful refresher as to what it, and i think i mean i was in I'm, I'm horrified by the the whole concept of a president not accepting this i'm horrified <laughs> by it. i mean it's just and let alone the crazies that stormed the capitol and and did that but i in thinking about this more and getting a little bit more distance from it and in reading your book and in thinking you know i think the system did pretty well uh the, the, this the election was certified the same day it, which was a very clear message no you're not fucking with this and i think and the instant response before all the partisanship kicked back in and and the polarization kicked back in was horror so i mean i in some ways, I think it was a very dark day. At the same time, the system kind of did prevail. Um, I also worry, and then, let's, then we're going we're to go to funny now. Yeah. I also worry whether in some ways the resistance 
has helped Trump as much as her. Hi there. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>